Good morning, good morning. We have been in Genesis chapter 4, and um, I would say that this is kind of a, eh, it's not one of your happier chapters of the Bible, at least at first glance, right? We have uh, the story of Cain. In fact, many of your Bibles may say this is the story of the legacy of Cain or the way of Cain or Cain and his descendants or maybe even portrait of an unrepentant sinner. One might think that Cain is the central character in this story. There's, a, there's another uh, character in the story, kind of in the shadows, slithering around, right? He has uh, made his um, appearance on the stage just a chapter earlier as he comes to destroy um, the people whom God has created. His hatred for mankind is evident. And once again, he is here in this story as well, affecting Cain. And uh, it is uh, the work of his hands that cause uh, Cain to go in that direction. And he, as he kills his brother uh, Abel, But the primary character of this story is God. That's why the title says God's grace prevails. Um, God is the hero of eternity, and he's the hero of this story also. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, but before we do that, I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 34. I opened right up to it. That was awesome. So if you... uh, and. You could keep a finger in Genesis 4 and a finger in Genesis 34. So if you want to do that, because we're going to hit 34 right now, and then a few minutes later, we're going to hit it again. So we're going to go to Genesis 34. Now I want to set the stage for you here in Genesis 34. Genesis, this may come as a shock to you, Genesis 34 comes after Genesis 32. <laughs> What's interesting about that is Genesis 32 has the story of the golden calf. Very familiar story to us. They're looking at is that for the, the people who have, of Israel who have just the, ta- been taken out in a miraculous fashion out of Egypt have sinned a great sin even as Moses is coming down with the tablets written by God and God says these people um, they have sinned and then in chapter 33 there's repentance And then in chapter 34, uh, Moses is having a very uh, intimate encounter with God. And he wants to see God, but that's not possible. So he has to see the afterglow of God. And God introduces himself. This is God speaking here in verse, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. And he says, the Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now, if you notice, your Bible should have it in all caps, which means, if you were in our Sunday school class, if it's all caps, it means that's Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? This is the I am of the burning bush. This is the all-sufficient one, one who has no beginning, who has no end, who's not dependent on anybody. That's how the Lord introduces, that's how God introduces himself. He is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that people like to stop there, but we're going to go ahead and add the other part because it, it will um, inform our, our message today. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God, when he introduces himself here in a very personal way, he wants to know, he wants us to know, he wants Moses and the people to know that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love or loving kindness and faithfulness. And I, and I love the end of that, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God whom we serve. He is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love. And uh, sometimes we forget that, especially when we see the awful sins of others and we, we wonder how can God be gracious to that person? That's just our flesh. That's just who we are. And, uh, and so when we look at this passage here in Genesis 4, um, 16 through 26, we're going to see that when we sit there and go, man, God is patient. So the title of our message is and how we're going to unpack, look at five observations of God's grace to the unrepentant and to the weak. And we'll start with number one, God extends grace to an unrepentant king. Verse 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, the land of wandering, east of Eden. Um, I, I'm not going to go to any farther just for a second here. Reveal, it's a revealing passage on Cain. Um, he has just uh, received the consequences of his sin. And I, I'm just, uh, I'm just astonished that he just, just says, all right, I'm out of here. There's no uh, desire to repent. There's no calling upon the name of God. There's no cry out for mercy. There's no like the tax in, in Matthew who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He just, he just leaves. Um, one commentator, R. Kent Hughes says, when he leaves, his head is bloody, but unbowed. A number of, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, we were looking at another passage, which actually, uh, can speak, it's kind of has some related uh, thoughts from James chapter four. And we looked at the poem Invictus where the commentator um, Hughes, he's, he's quoting from there, bloody, but unbowed. Okay. He, he doesn't want to bow to anyone, not even God. He's what would be described as being stiff necked, stiff necked because it, it doesn't want to bow down. This shouldn't surprise us because if we, if we look at the, the story that we just have been covering in chapter four, we know that in verse five, he was unwilling to give an acceptable offering to God. I think he was just going through the motions. No doubt his parents said, you know, you, you've got to go ahead and give an offering. So he does, but he's not, his heart's not in it. And so he gives what is an unacceptable offering to God. And we don't, God's gracious. My goodness, if he had given it a shot and it was his best and it was, but no, he didn't care. 
He gets angry and God speaks to him about his anger, but he's unwilling to let go of it. Even uh, in the face of God's counsel to him to be uplifted instead of to let anger control him. Verse nine, um, this was a, is, a, is an interesting one. I think of him as being really disrespectful to God. God asks him, where is Abel? And he says, first of all, he says, I don't know, which is a lie. But then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Like, what are you asking me for? Super. I mean, it's like, bam. You know, it's like, hey, I, I would be surprised if the next verse said, and God smote him from heaven, right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He just lets him sit there. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, why are you asking me that? You may think that he's my responsibility, but I don't accept that as my responsibility. Is basically what he's saying. Like, don't tell me what to do. Verse 10, he doesn't even answer God. What have you done? The Lord says. The voice of your brother's blood. I think, I don't know if there's a space right after what after. I, I, I want to think about where that silence is. What have you done? And then silence as he just sits there looking at God, maybe his hands are folded. And then after God gives him his consequences, we notice from verse 13 and again from 16, we can look at both of these real quickly. He is unwilling to repent or be sorrowful. He doesn't say when God calls him on his sin, he doesn't say, oh, and then he realizes he's going to be a wanderer. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I got angry and killed my brother. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm not going to see my parents anymore. Doesn't mention that. He's, he's just really concerned about his own occupation. And then here, he, he's just going to take that punishment. Not going to, not going to say anything about it. Just going to walk away. Again, the fact that God doesn't just strike him then is grace. The fact that God lets him disobey is grace. The fact that God lets him walk away and be a wanderer and also to have protection for him, which we covered, uh, Pastor Gary covered uh, last week. All of that is grace. Why grace for Cain? Surely he doesn't deserve it. Going back, if you had your finger back in Exodus chapter 34, after God has introduced himself personally as a gracious and forgiving and a merciful God, and the people have sinned and repented of their sin, and, and then Moses says in verse 9, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. What's he saying there? Look at the contrast. We don't want to go away from you and we don't want you to go away from us. We want your presence with us. We're still a stiff, you see, for it is a stiff necked people. We're still a stiff necked people, but we recognize that. And we don't want our, our failing, our weakness 
to cause a separation between us. Please, it says, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Accept us, God, because we want to, we want to, we want to stand on that mercy and grace and your steadfast love, your loving kindness. In spite of the fact that we are a stiff-necked people, in spite of the fact that we are to his people, his stiff-necked people, though they do not deserve it. And extends grace to an unrepentant, stiff-necked Cain who does not deserve it either. But then again, who does? That really begs the question. At what point does someone, their life, their decisions, the fruit of their, um, uh, their actions, at what point does that say, okay, now, now I deserve God's grace. Let's go to point number two. God allows Cain's descendants to live and prosper. We find that uh, Cain has a son and uh, he builds a city and calls the name of the city after Enoch. So the city's name is Enoch. Enoch means dedication. Um, and actually the Greek, the uh, Hebrew word is Hanuk, from where we get the word Hanukkah. Okay, so it's related, it's, it's like that, not related. Purpose means the same thing. It is interesting here because um, uh, he, was, he was told by God he was going to be a wanderer, and here he's establishing a city. It's probably not a big city. It could be a, a, a word for this, for city is not like metropolis. It's like, a, it could be just a few tents. So we, we don't know if this is um, Cain kind of saying, uh, call me a wanderer, I'm going to build a city. You know, there's, a, there's almost a little bit of defiance here too. Then again, we don't know how long has passed. Cain, Cain was in the land of Nod, which is um, the meaning of Nod is wandering. So he's the land in the land of wandering. So we know it's east of Eden, as uh, Pastor Gary showed us last uh, last week. Um, and so he could he could be out there for decades. I mean, he's got to wait for a, a wife, <laughs> so that's going to take a while. Um, so he's probably out there for uh, for decades, and and now we we see that um, not only is God again allowing him to do that in in spite of the fact that he's supposed to be a wanderer, now he's building a city. Now I'm not sure if he thinks he's uh, saying, "Well, I'm not really building a city for myself. I'm building a city for my son Enoch." But nonetheless, God allows him uh, to do what he's doing, and and then we have six generations that come after him. Oh, this is the seventh generation, seven generations after Adam. So uh, as uh, Christian read, we have Enoch, Irad, Irad, and so forth, all the way to Lamech. And Lamech has uh, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. I'm sure that was not a confusing household. Um... I think they put, uh, when they said, came up with the name Tubal, they said, we better add something to this. This is just going to be too crazy here. But again, uh, we see just this line and no mention of any connection with God, no acknowledgement of God. 
this is human civilization apart from God. And uh, even so, living life as if God, like a, what we would call a practical atheist, they, they still um, have the common grace upon them. They're not, their life, they still have life. They still have able to um, have uh, food and have children and live. And uh, in verses uh, 20 to 22, we also see that they, they have um, uh, they kind of prosper. We have uh, one of the uh, sons being the father of those who have um, livestock, animal husbandry. We see music. We see uh, technology in uh, bronze and iron. All of that here before the flood. And God lets them continue. And then there's Lamech. I know we've just talked about uh, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, but Lamech is their father, and he's an interesting character. So we're going to look at point number three God delays judgment to the prideful, godless line of Cain. So we've already looked at this line being a, a godless line. And then we have Lamech. Lamech means powerful. You must have really liked his name. My name is powerful. And uh, I'm so awesome. I can't be restricted to one wife. He decides he needs two. This is the first mention of polygamy in the Bible. He's got a super invictus attitude. Look at as he speaks in uh, verse 23. You, you wives of Lamech. He speaks about himself in the third person. He's so great, you know. He, he's not just bloody and unbowed like, like Cain. Because in mentioning Cain here, he acknowledges that Cain needed God's protection. But Lamech's a little bit different. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech says Cain, Cain needed God's protection. Lamech, Lamech avenges himself. Lamech does not need a God to protect him. Lamech proclaims himself. James chapter 4 um, when it talks about in verses 13 and 14, it's talking about those who would live as if they, as if God does not exist. He says uh, about those who would make plans. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You boast in your arrogance, verse 16. All such boasting is evil. This is Lamech. Cain's line, a line of descendants without God, degenerates in its wickedness. We're going to see this again post-flood in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. So the story looks kind of bleak right now. The enemy, who knows, at this time might be kind of smug. We don't know if the line of, when we start, start, start talking about the line of Seth, how that plays out. We don't know if this is chronologically one right after the other or if they're side by side. But certainly the reader writing, running through might sit there and go, oh my goodness, what about, what about the seed? What about, I mean, we just had a dark chapter, but in that dark chapter was the mention of the gospel, the first mention of the gospel, what we call the proto-evangelium, where it looks at, if we turn one page before, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. But uh, if we looked at Cain and Abel, we might figure, okay, we know Cain, he's not the promised seed. And Abel, he, he, you know, maybe he might have been that, uh, put it, be put in that thought as we look at him, but he's dead now, so that line is over. Where will the champion, the promised seed of 315, where is he coming from? Mankind is far from God. The story doesn't end here. It reminds me a little bit of um, Revelation chapter 5. When they, uh, there's a, the mighty angel declaring, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John says, uh, there's no one worthy. And he begins to weep. But then an elder says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he's able to open the scroll and its seals. God has an answer. God always wins. I've said this before. This is God's world. It's created for his glory. And he will make all things right in the end. And he's going to make things right even here. He speaks in his actions and remembers his people. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. No seed here. But the words, the words we've seen them before in scripture, but God, those change everything. And so point number four says, but God graces mankind and appoints another seed. So Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Interesting. Interesting here um, about Eve. I think Eve, uh, we, we can see here that Eve, probably along with Adam, must have had a number of conversations. First of all, we know from um, the next chapter, verse, chapter 5, verse 3, Adam and Eve are 130 years old. So, so some time has passed. We don't know how old they were when... Um, Cain and Abel were born, but surely decades has passed. We don't know if there are children between Abel and, and Seth. We don't know that either. There may have been, but certainly any children there were not any children that they would say, ah, here's the seed. She identifies um, Seth as the seed. In fact, there's a little bit of play on words here. Uh, Seth in the Hebrew is Sheth. And so um, she called his name Sheth, for she said, God has Sheth appointed me for me or set for me. We could also say she called him Seth, for he has set for me another seed or another offspring instead of Abel. It's interesting them having children towards the, the, um, for, for the seed shows their, their hope. They have a hope here. They have a hope in God's promise. And, uh, they recognize Seth as the substitute for Abel. It also, uh, lets us know that she may have, uh, she considered Abel the one 
Oh, they, they knew their sons. They knew that Abel was the godly and righteous one. And surely they knew um, what Cain was all about. And so in, from verse 24, no seed. And now all of a sudden God speaks into the story by giving to Adam and Eve the new son of promise, the, the new, the line in which um, the champion of the gospel will come. Point number five, God's grace prevails for those whose hearts call upon him. Verse 26 begins to Seth. Also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Now Seth, again, we go to chapter five. It tells us how old he was. He was 105 years old. So again, we don't know if he had any children before Enosh. Um, but uh, the scripture has, is looking specifically at Enosh. And we're going to find out from chapter 5, Enosh is the one that's carrying the line that, uh, that is leading from Eve to the seed of um, Genesis 3.15. Now, the, uh, Enosh means man, okay? However, um, it's a different word for man that we have encountered that's been used. Um, and and we, wanna, we wonder why. Like, for instance, uh, the first uh, name for man is Adam, okay? Adam is uh, man. It, uh, I think the Greek equivalent uh, would be anthropos, when we get the word anthropology, so just man or mankind. Um, and we've used the, in, in scripture, we've, uh, seen the, the word ish for man, ish, as opposed to isha, man, as opposed to woman. And there's also been the word zakar that's been used, which just means a male. So, so Seth could have used, um, any of those words. It would have been fine to say, Hey, he's a, he's a zakar. He, it's a boy, Right. No, he, he uses a nosh. So we wonder, what does a nosh mean? Technically, it means man, but it's interesting. If you, if I gave you a couple of verses, it might lend some um, understanding of what this word a nosh means for man. Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? This is enosh. What is enosh that you would be mindful of him? Again, the implication here is, Compared to you, God, because he's just talking about just talking about all the greatness of God and in the first few verses. And then he says, what is man that you're even mindful of? It's so small compared to you and compared to your creation. The psalmist of Psalm 103, verse 15 also writes, as for man, his days again, as for man, as for Enosh, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Man, man's like a, like what uh, we would see in other passages, like a vapor. His life is short. He's so insignificant compared to you, God. It's really the idea of Enosh here. It is a, an acknowledgement that God is strong. God is immor immortal. And in comparison, man is weak, insignificant. Excuse me, God is immortal. They say that man is weak, insignificant and mortal. Interestingly, Job, when he's, he's 
faced with the greatness of God. And he talks about man 18 times. He uses the word Enosh. And so Seth at this time, when he's talking about Enosh, whether this is a recognition of where he is in his own life already, or this has been his life all this time, I do not know, but he's saying, uh, we are humbly, I'm humbly calling my son Enosh as an acknowledgement that we are weak in comparison to God. We are without strength in comparison to God. I didn't finish that verse. It says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Joel 2.32 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is an indication of these people. And again, I don't know if him calling his son Enosh was a reflection of what was happening to the people, that they were already acknowledging their weakness and their need for God, or if calling his son Enosh was a proclamation and that people responded by, by, um, by turning to God. I tend to lean to the former, but it really doesn't matter. The point is at that time, this line of Seth, that the line of Seth and his people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is what God's people do. They call upon the name of the Lord. These are the, these are the ones who, who become his sheep. Again, the word, uh, you see, Lord, there's all caps. This is Yahweh. This is the, the gracious God abounding in mercy. This is the I am, the one without beginning or end, the all-sufficient one, the one that depends on no one. That is the one who we call upon. This is the God of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. A couple of thoughts here as we look and compare the two lines, the line of Cain, and the line of Seth. Again, Seth, Seth's line right here, the comment is very brief. But we know that the legacy of Seth um, are a people who call upon the name of God. And we see the line of Cain ends with Lamech, who calls upon his own name. The line of Cain ends with Lamech. We have no mention of it later on. If we consider just in a couple more chapters, we're going to hit the flood. The line that goes through the flood is the line of Seth. The line of Cain, again, God delayed his judgment. In his grace, he allowed them to continue. He gave them ample opportunity, six generations, to turn to him. They don't, and they perish in the flood. This line, this genealogy, so to speak, of the, of, of, uh, that we just looked at with, of Cain has no birth dates, no death dates. Nothing is recorded. We don't know how old Cain was. We don't know much about him because it really doesn't, almost doesn't matter. He's insignificant. He disappeared. In spite of the pro proclamations of Lamech, he died. His life was short in comparison. His life was insignificant in comparison to God. 
We are all of the line of Seth. He's the one, if you follow the genealogy of chapter 5, that leads to Noah. Begins with Adam and it ends up with Noah in verse 32 of chapter 5. God wins. God declared in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of Eve would crush the enemy, the serpent's head. Her seed, he shall crush your head. This is the first mention of the gospel. This is the, the, um, the gospel message. That's, uh, I think it's in Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.18. That gospel message that is the, as God's word says, the power of God. And so that power of God cannot be stopped by any effort of the enemy. He may make some impact, but God wins in the end. We ought to consider also, as we look about this, as we consider the grace that God showed, not only to the people who did not, that were unrepentant, that would not acknowledge him, and also to the people who called upon his name. And we need to recognize and celebrate the grace of God in our own lives. I'm going to just go, I've got a, little, a few minutes here, so we can go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to go there with me. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, we, are, we find that we, at one point, were dead in our trespasses. We are all of the seed of Adam, and there was sin, and so we were dead in our trans trespasses. And verse 4, those two wonderful words, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and that steadfast love, that abounding mercy, that gracious slow to anger God. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. Not only were we saved, but we are raised up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. For, break, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are enosh. We are weak. We don't have the power to save ourselves. We need God. Without him, we would perish like the line of Cain. Um, and, and you would say there are, like even uh, James chapter 4, what we covered a couple months ago, people even who would walk in churches, who live lives as if God doesn't matter. They don't recognize that they are anosh. They proclaim the, uh, the statements from the poem Invictus. I am the captain. You know, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Um, and they don't acknowledge that they are weak, that they are anosh. We need to acknowledge that. As it says in Ephesians 2, um, verse 12, 
when he talks about what we were, he says, at one point we were without hope and without God in the world. That is the plight of so many people right now. They are without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. He made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in him. He crushed the serpent, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that was challenged in chapter 4 was restored and realized at the cross of Christ. And our champion has crushed the enemy so that we no longer need to be slaves to sin, but we can live for Christ. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for um, the message that you give to us. We are thankful that you are powerful enough to crush any enemy. Even as we see in this book, your word declares that you are far above everything else and anything else. You are the almighty one. You are the all sufficient one. You declare and it happens and no one can stop it. We are thankful, Lord, that you declared an answer to our sin. That you set into motion the creative plan of the gospel and that our champion, Christ Jesus, your son, has made a way for us to, to be acceptable, to be able to approach you, to be reconciled to you, to have our sin cleansed away and for us to have eternal fellowship with you, even as we are adopted into your family. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that it would speak to us again and again, that we would recognize that we are anosh, that we are weak without you, but in our weakness we are strong because of the power of your gospel and the power of your love and the power of your ability to work through us. We ask, Lord, now that you would let these words abide in us, that we may meditate on them, that you would uh, cause fruit from the receiving of your word into our hearts that would cause us to act on your behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.